Welcome to day 92 of The Story That Changes Everything. Our readings for today begin our journey through the book of 2 Samuel. We're reading chapters 1 through 3. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. The book of 2 Samuel begins the same way the books of Joshua and Judges began, with the announcement of the key leader's death. Chapter 1 begins this way, after Saul's death. The book of Joshua began with the death of Moses, and Judges opened with the death of Joshua. The death of each marked the end of a particular era. Moses, the exodus, Joshua, the establishment in the land, and now the death of Saul, the end of the first monarchy. The first half of the chapter gives a supposed eyewitness account to the death of Saul. The information given by the messenger is quite different, however, from the account given in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul took his own life, but in 2 Samuel account, he is killed by the messenger relaying the news, an Amalekite. Don't miss the irony. Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites, and at least in this version of the story, the Amalekites not only are the cause of his downfall, but now an Amalekite is the cause of his death. How do we resolve the tensions between the differences in these two accounts? Some scholars argue that the Amalekite has fabricated the story to gain favor with David. Others argue that there are two different oral traditions, like there was in 1 Samuel chapters 24 and 26, that are brought together in the scripture without trying to resolve their differences. Other scholars argue that the second Samuel account is created to absolve David once again clearly from any participation in the death of Saul and Jonathan. Whatever the case may be, the Amalekite messenger is not rewarded for bringing David the news, nor is he rewarded for killing Saul. Instead, David strikes him down for daring to harm the Lord's anointed. The second half of the first chapter is a beautiful lament devoted to the downfall of not only Saul and Jonathan, but the defeat of the Israelite army as well. Its words are passionate and heartfelt from David. However, the poem or psalm might also serve the purpose of increasing the likelihood that the northern tribes that were so loyal to Saul might transfer their loyalty to the Judean David. Chapters 2 through 4 describe the early days of David's monarchy when the nation of Israel was divided between the house of David in the south and the continuing house of Saul in the north. The Hebrew verb for ascend appears four times in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. David asks the Lord if he should ascend, and the Lord replies, yes, ascend. Symbolically and significantly, the Lord tells David to ascend to the city of Hebron, the place closely associated with Abraham. Perhaps the narrator wants readers to see the promises made to Abraham beginning to come to fruition in David. David was anointed king of Judah. Judah was in the south. He makes the first move of expansion by sending a gift to Jabesh Gilead in gratitude for their treatment of Saul and Jonathan's bodies. Saul's son Ishbosheth was anointed king over the northern tribes, which included Ephraim. The northern tribes will later be known by that name. Ishbosheth may be king, but it's clear that his general Abner is actually in charge. A story is included in the chapter about 12 of Abner's soldiers marching up in a kind of duel against 12 of David's men, led by his primary general, Joab. Joab and his brothers, Abishai and Asahel, are mentioned in the text as sons of Zeruiah, David's sister. 
So they are not only some of Judah's leading warriors, but they're also David's nephews. The 24 dueling soldiers are so evenly matched that they end up killing one another. A battle breaks out, and David and Joab's men put Abner and his men on the run. The speedy Asahel chases down Abner, only to be killed by the seasoned and experienced warrior. Abner talks Joab into a truce, but the chapter ends by noting how many more of Ishbosheth's men died than David's. And chapter 3 opens with the comment that this was the way things went in the protracted war between them. David kept getting stronger, and Ishbosheth progressively weaker. Brief mention is made in the text of the expanding family of David, including more wives and sons. This is an indication of not just his expanding numbers, but of his political influence in gathering more alliances with people through marriage. Meanwhile, in the north, Ishbosheth shows some of the jealousy and paranoia of his father, accusing Abner of taking Ritzbah, one of Saul's concubines, in a move that would not just be sexual in nature, but also an attempt to claim power to himself. Offended, Abner switches allegiances and goes to David to work out an alliance. Rather than being happy for the opportunity of peace, David's general Joab plots and accomplishes revenge against Abner for killing his brother. An interesting note in the story is that Joab kills Abner within the walls of Hebron, which is a city of refuge, thus making Joab guilty of bloodletting, of murder, and deserving of the curse David calls down upon his life. The rest of the chapter works hard at absolving David of any guilt in the death of Abner because of the ways that the deaths of Saul, Jonathan, and now Abner have clearly advanced David's political career. It's important to the narrator that all suspicions regarding David's potential involvement in their deaths was removed. But David is not without some guilt in the chapter. In the middle of it, he works to get Michael returned to him even though she had been given away by Saul earlier. This does not appear to be done out of love on David's part, but with political intentions in mind. The clear reconnection of his house with the house of Saul is his intention. Poor Michael continues to be a political pawn in the games played by the men in her life, and it clearly breaks the heart of her husband, Paltiel. Is David as innocent as the narrator wants us to believe that he is? Maybe, but maybe not. Is God at work behind these misdeeds of others that keep benefiting David? That's hard to say. But the text does not mention God. And yet, it seems that God is quietly working through this broken mess to redeem all things. These texts are messy, to say the least. God may have chosen David to shepherd Israel, but his ascent to power wasn't without significant drama. I don't think that these texts mean that God will just work everything out in the end. Terrible things happen in these chapters, and people get hurt, and even the best characters seem to have mixed motives. Perhaps these stories can remind us that our lives, institutions, and relationships can at times be pretty messy, but that doesn't mean God can't use them or still use us. The call is to be as wise, gracious, and virtuous as possible while recognizing the results are not solely up to us. So read these messy chapters carefully, appreciating their complicated dynamics. Journal your thoughts, prayers, and questions. And take some comfort in the fact that God's people have always been a bit of a mess, but God somehow keeps using us. 
Our readings for tomorrow continue David's ascent. We're reading 2 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, and we're adding Psalm 39. I'll talk to you tomorrow.